Today I feature two authors whose interests may converge, but their writing and literary goals couldn't be more different. I am Suzanne Lang, and I bring you a novel idea. Verbosity and Concision conventional narrative and formal invention are a few of the contrasts between the writers we'll visit with today. Later, we'll talk with Schuyler Wood, who's A Crisis at Tranquility, the first book of his Tranquility trilogy, spans three lengthy books of lively storytelling with a drama and adventure on nearly every page. In contrast, my next guest, Marston Hefner, tends toward the leanness of flash fiction and prose poetry in his slender but potent book of stories, High School Romance. I was interested in these two authors in a way of contrasts, but I found similarities in both men's use of introspection in their process, though with vastly different outcomes. Schuyler's book is animated and fast-paced, and Marston's is deliberate, sometimes dark, and sometimes humorous or ironic. Stay with us. It's a novel idea. Marston Hefner is a young writer who plays with language and sentiment, with some of his pieces having a sort of absurdity that, upon closer reading, push through on an emotional level. He's frank with his language and doesn't pander to the reader. Marston's first book was Bleed, a Story of Zombies, and that was published under the name Marston Glenn, without his last name, which he claims in this, his latest work. For any offspring of famous or infamous parents, it can be difficult to forge their own path. And this Hefner puts forward his own unique voice and perspectives, fully asserting his own identity. Let's listen to my conversation with him. High School Romance, first welcome. I'm happy to talk to you today about your new book. Thank you. This is a collection of short stories, and I don't know if I even want to call it that. There are little pieces that seem personal, but not quite autobiographical. And you seem to be playing with literary form here, and that some of the pieces actually read a little like prose poems. So I want to talk with you uh, a little bit about your approach to writing stylistically and using this short form because it's a it's a slight book it's under 100 pages yeah first of all i just want to say what an honor it is to be here so for the book i think i grew up in an undergraduate program that said you know you have to be four pages and uh single spaced and that's like a real short story and i just never really liked the way that academia taught writing the peer groups where you have to read each other's writing and then criticize it felt harsh to me. And so really I did a class and it was, I just practiced with flash fiction and I didn't realize that flash fiction was a thing, but the uh, room really responded to it. The students seemed to really like it. And so I thought this is something that I enjoyed putting out. And it's also something that I'm, that I'm good at. I think a large part of the flash fiction coming so naturally to me is that I have ADD and I really hyper-focus and I really want to feel inspired and momentum and joy in short, brief bursts, um, especially, you know, not in all things, but especially when it comes to writing, uh, which is something where you're sitting down and it doesn't come natural for someone who you know, in a, 
different lifetime would have been a hunter or uh, would have been a fisher, um, done something with his hands. It's interesting that you've just admitted to um, having ADD. And while I was reading some of the stories, I actually wondered that um, some of your writing has like um, uh, a repetition to it within a sentence or something like that. So it sounds like you're maximizing that in your writing, or maybe it's completely unconscious on your part. I don't know. Yeah, I can definitely see it now that you mention the fact that I have ADD, um, the breaking in form and the repetition as like kind of a trick to keep me interested in the story, to find a melody rather than something that um, it's something that immediately builds momentum. Right. Yeah, I can see that. And for the readers, it's interesting, you're saying for you, you're building a, a momentum as the writer, and it also um, is arresting for the reader, too, uh, in getting our attention. So a, a lot of the characters in your stories seem to be struggling between sentiment and, and an affect, kind of wanting to be warm and tough at the same time yearning, but not always wanting to admit as much. And all told with languages we're just talking about that kind of makes the reader pay attention. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about that tension between maybe warmth and toughness or sentiment and affect. I really enjoy that question because I was just talking about that with my fiance. I've grown a lot as a person with her and she's someone that I talk to about this stuff all the time. And she said, well, well, basically we were watching this TV show called Snowflake Mountain. And it was about taking really sensitive people and sticking them on a mountain. I don't, I don't, I, now I realize I'm like giving the, an advertisement. I'm not trying to do that, but we were watching a TV show on Netflix and it was really about this kind of be a man, toughen up and like stick to your guns. And I think my mother instilled that in me where throughout my life, and by the way, my mother's wonderful. I'm, I'm very close with her, but she instilled this notion of a real man, you know, doesn't feel things. And a real man will stick with something even if they don't enjoy it. And I think a lot of people get that messaging. And so I'm like a pretty emotionally sensitive guy. And I grew up in a school that encouraged feelings and I had wonderful teachers and I had, I advocated for myself to go to therapy when I was like 15 years old. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, most of me that is a very sensitive person and loves talking about feelings. It's like my main thing that I enjoy talking about with, with my fiance. And, but I gravitate still to this day towards people in my life who are maybe harder than me or who feel less than me, who can even hurt me by being absent. And I think that a part of me unconsciously views these men, these tough guys, as the epitome of what a person should be even though my left brain, my logical brain knows that that's not, you know, really even a happy place to be. Mm-hmm. And it comes out in really almost all the stories. And the very nature of the book, it's called High School Romance. And there's also a piece in the book called High School Romance. And when I just think about a high school romance, I I think of something that can be so sweet and so tender and so hurtful and abusive, too. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, most of these stories are, are marked by that sort of edge. So you obviously enjoy or, or want to probe that. I find myself in my life 
constantly doing that. So, you know, I'm really grateful that you spotted that. I was, I'm going to say, predisposed to disliking a story that begins with, I masturbated on Sherman Alexie's Pulitzer Prize winning The Absolutely True Story of a Part-Time Indian. But the second part of this sentence is because I wanted to know what it felt like to be intimate with something great. So just even within that one sentence, by the end of it, and I should say this is the opening sentence to a piece called Being Alone. Um, by the end of that sentence, I, I felt like my heart was broken a bit. And the isolation in that story is, is just palpable. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that story a little bit and why you open it in such a provocative way. Yeah, well, I wrote that piece in Japan when I was living in Tokyo. And it was actually a very happy time in my life. But for whatever reason, I think there was a deep sadness in me. I was kind of working out some addiction issues. But I, I was, it was called being alone and I'm alone. In real life, I'm alone in Tokyo writing this book, really loving it, chain smoking on the third floor of a Choco Crow cafe. But there is a solitude to me, and I think I, I push people away, and I, I'm not sure why I do that in my life. I'm, I'm pretty much just like a 23-year-old, 24-year-old trying to figure things out, trying to start my life after college. And I also went on a psychedelic trip with marijuana recently asking myself why I wrote and the answer that kept coming to me was you know finished 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 the word finished in bright white in my head just repeated over and over again and I think this book was my attempt at trying to be great at something my attempt to be remembered for something and the intimacy between, you know, my father is Hugh Hefner, the intimacy between me and Sherman Alexie and just wanting to be as close as possible to Sherman Alexie. I wanting to pick his brain, wanting to know everything that Sherman Alexie can teach me. The greatness of Sherman Alexie in my life, the influence that he had, he went above and beyond. He went, we were reading him in academia, but he wasn't academia. And wanting all of that with my father, which I never got to have, how great of a man my father was, what a genius he was, and what an opportunity he had to pass down his everything he had learned to me. Never really having a father figure, never really having a mentor who could show me the ropes, as they say. And I think that also comes across in the I Am Dundalillo story wanting to be Don DeLillo's uh, son as well, yeah. And, and in that Don DeLillo story, it's published, it's written in all caps. And I guess I wondered about that too, because that is such a graphic, uh, demonstrative way of whether we do, do that in our text messages or whatever. And I wondered how that choice was made to make that all all in caps, almost screaming it out. Yeah, um, it's a trick that I learned from the alternative literature slash indie literature movement. You know, you do lower caps for more relaxed, um, kind of chilling with your friends um, sort of prose, and then you do all caps when you want to just, hey, scream at someone and it gets it across in a way that I that's obviously much better than we know every writer kind of knows to not use exclamation marks for every single sentence and so this is a way to do that and do you find that your writing is what I would call provocative or well I don't know just maybe a reaction to that word yes I do and you mentioned that your your dad was Hugh Hefner. And I noticed that you have a previous novel that is published under the name Marston Glenn. But now you're, you're kind of owning your identity. And I wondered if you can talk a little bit about that with us. Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. I, I think that for me, 
I wanted to be someone who made it in life despite my last name. Mm -hmm. um, and when I used Marston Glenn, it was a desire to make it as a writer, to be, to gain an audience as a writer, you know, without the last name Hefner. And I'm not sure what allowed me to use Marston Hefner, my, my name, my last name, but um, it felt like this is who I am, good or bad. Um, and the reader's going to like this um, for the wrong reasons, or the reader's going to not like this for the wrong reasons. And uh, the literary readers aren't going to care. And so it just felt more truthful all around to, I guess, my lived experience, like having that last name when I used it in my writing. And also I'm okay with, I'm basically okay with gaining more readers through my last name. Like I know how hard it is to be in the trenches as a writer. And I'm like for whenever somebody tries to get more readers, like I go, I, I give them a thumbs up and say, Hey, go get them, man. That in itself takes a, a degree of courage to, um, own your own identity, your own identity, and everything around the edges, including your parents, um, fold into that. But I wondered if you also could talk about that book, Bleed, um, that was, I don't know, maybe published several years ago, and how you relate with it now. I'm just really proud of myself for having done it. I was an undergraduate and I wrote a very small zombie book. Um, you know, after I, after classes, after homework, I always gave myself an hour, you know, four days a week to write bleed. And I kept it in a little folder. I think very nostalgic of it now. Like, yeah, I'm, it was good memories. Zombies. I guess I always have a question about why zombies are so prevalent in our popular culture. And maybe you could answer that for me, because uh, it's something that I've always found a little disturbing. And why are we so intrigued with uh, the undead or people coming back from the dead? Or yeah, It's something that I... I have to say, I don't really get because it doesn't always resonate with me. So yeah. maybe you could explain part of that to me. Well, there's two things. One, it's uh, with my brother and I, we, and it wasn't, it wasn't just my brother and I, we would go to parties and go like, what would you do if a zombie outbreak happened? And it was a total joy to work out issues of like survival slash you know, oh, that wouldn't work. It's like problem solving slash storytelling at, you know, high school parties about like, I'd use a crowbar. Well, a crowbar is going to be more optimal than an ax because a crowbar doesn't like dull. So these kinds of conversations, you know, fascinated me as a kid. Second of all, it was a hive mind. The, you know, you have mm -hmm. 10 idiots trying to eat away at your brains. It's, <laughs> It's there's the understanding that I live in a culture where I'm seeing things a little bit differently and a little bit further ahead than the majority of the culture. And I, I really do believe that that's like the perfect unconscious, you know, representation is the zombie. Yeah. I still find it kind of creepy, though. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm wondering if you are writing now and and might you approach some longer narrative work i am working on a longer narrative piece it's going to take me a long time because this book that you read which is very short took me like six to seven seven to eight years to write but i am working on it and i can't talk about it because you know it jinx it jinxes it it ruins the magic yeah, you know, I think that just what you said about this uh, book, High School Romance, taking you so long, 
that's a really a common story I hear from many writers that um, we, the readers, don't really understand all the time um, the effort and the practice that goes into writing. And I wonder if you have a, a regular kind of routine about your writing. I do. Five days a week, hour and a half of reading, two hours of writing. So you're a big reader, too? What What are you reading these days? Uh, right now, Game of Thrones and Darth Plagueis. Both, uh, star, both, uh, one's a Star Wars book and one is you know Game of Thrones, as you know. Uh-huh. I also have read that you are a professional backgammon player, which was a game I played maniacally at home with my brother and sister when I was growing up, but would probably need the rules refreshed for me right now. But what is it that draws you into this and how does one get good at it? And I guess I didn't know there was such a thing as being a professional backgammon player, but of course, why wouldn't there be? So can you just talk a little bit about that and and what it provides you in your life? Sure. My dad was a backgammon player. He taught all of his kids how to play backgammon and I learned by showing up every Thursday um, in my dad's study and he taught me um, how to play. And I always used to say, you know, I wish that our family was a chess family because I really like (laughs) chess, but our family's a backgammon family. So, you know, whatever, I guess I'm playing backgammon. That's what I learned. I, I was a competitive person. I am a competitive person and I'm also a video gamer guy I, I really love video games and so this was a way to do both of those things while also saying hey dad like look at me am i am i doing well like so there is is somewhat of a um a familial connection um and affection with with the game yeah Marston Hefner, High School Romance, is, is the book we're talking about. And I wonder um, if you in your future might write a biography or, or memoir that in, includes your, your childhood, which I'm only imagining might have been different than some of ours, but maybe not so much. I'm not sure. But uh, do you ever think about that? Do I get asked it? It seems so personal. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. That, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it even interests me. Um, at this point in time, I can't say what will interest me when I'm 40 or 50 years old. But right now, it's, it's very difficult to go to that place. I think there's a part of me that so wishes to be, have a normal childhood have a normal upbringing because I'm trying to relate to everyone and if it's something different then it's harder for people to go oh yeah that makes sense like it's hard for me to go to those places yeah maybe when you are 50 or 60 yeah you'll have a different way of contextualizing your own life then as we all do is there something that that you might like to leave our readers and listeners with um, about your book. Um, If you enjoyed this conversation, I hope that you would also enjoy the book. I'm just, I'm grateful if you give it a shot and I'm grateful for you listening to this. I found the book um, challenging and because the pieces are short I could go back to them, and I want to say just as observing, say, abstract art or, or poetry, um, that the rereading uh, of it provided some depth and, and resonance that I appreciated. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to, to be interviewed by you. And, you know, I, I grew up, like, listening to NPR as a college student like I had NPR on my just on my radio station so for me it's also an honor to 
talk with authors who, you know, as you said, this you spent years writing this, and I feel humbled by uh, talking with you and others and being able to share it with listeners. It feels like a somehow a coming around of of that we all need each other to get the word out and to explore ideas. I'm glad you joined us today. Thank you so much. My conversation with Marston Hefner and his book is High School Romance, published by Clash Books. Before we move on, let's listen to a reading from his collection. Fast Freddy. As for me, I loved running through the schoolyard. It was my primal joy, and I aimed to be the best at it. I was so terrible at all other things. I put my whole self-worth on it, on top of it, and I was good at it, or so I knew when I ran. But of course, there was always Freddy, and Freddy was always very fast. Freddy, like me, couldn't beat the fastest kids in school, but he was very fast. He could beat whoever, unless it was like Ray or Ashwin. Ray was one grade lower, so he didn't count, and Ashwin was one of the nicest kids in school, so no one really thought about him. It seemed in just about everything, Freddy and I were near equals, so he was always my natural rival. One day, our PE coach, Lenny, said, how about you two boys race? And we agreed, of course, both of us wondering who was the fastest. I lined up against Freddy. I put my foot on the line, and I hoped that whatever wind would be pushing me through, it would push me through it, that mystery when it hit my back and let me know I'd win. Sometimes I felt it, and sometimes I didn't, but when I felt it, my muscles relaxed, and I'd think, ah, this is it, and I've found it. But all in kids speak, back then I didn't have a name for it, the thing that gave me the confidence to race so fast. Whoever wins is the fastest kid in school said our P.E. coach, Lenny. Then she said, On your marks, get set, go. And I ran, and Freddy ran too. At first we were tied, and then I was ahead. Eventually I was getting even further ahead, making progress on my already good fortune. I was breaking away, and the wind, it felt like it was pushing my tukas forward, levitating my feet, making my legs lighter than ever. And I was winning. So long as I kept winning, victory was at the end. But that was when I saw Freddy catching up. So I was focusing on Freddy, but I was also trying to run faster. Then I told myself to just run faster, but I couldn't help but focus on Freddy, who was catching up with me. I pushed and I pushed. I knew if I pushed harder for three or so seconds, I would win. I only had to push harder than Freddy, and that was all. If I wanted it more, and God knew I wanted it more, the race would be over, but Freddy was passing me. Freddy was slightly ahead of me, and I died inside. Freddy crossed that finish line, and I had stopped, just short of it, knowing that I knew there was no point in finishing. It felt like my limbs weren't as capable as Freddy's, and my being was less than whatever Freddy's was. I ran more than anyone else in the school, but I still couldn't beat Freddy. He was smiling, and I smiled back because he was such a good kid, and we were friends. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, Good job, but it didn't take much for me to think Freddy was lying. Good job? I had lost, and I wasn't even close to the best. Freddy was better than me, and there was always Ray, and there was always Ashwin. I had put everything, everything that was within me, into that race that I lost, and all of it, all that I pushed into myself, just to be the fourth fastest kid in the school. Fast Freddy from Marston Hefner's Book of Stories, High School Romance. Stay with us. We'll take a short break and then talk with Skylar Wood on the first installment of his Tranquility Trilogy, A Crisis at Tranquility. 
me to the end of love. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. Schuyler M. Wood has published his novel A Crisis at Tranquility, which is the first installment of the Tranquility Trilogy. It's set 60 years in the future on a casino that is orbiting the planet. Each page is filled with action, romance, bad guys, and humor, and the book is steeped in popular culture of the past half century. Schuyler has a lifelong fascination with science and brought all his tools and interests to the work. Let's listen to our conversation. Schuyler M. Wood, welcome to talk about your book, A Crisis at Tranquility. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Crisis at, at Tranquility is book one of the Tranquility Trilogy, and you are obviously having a lot of fun here, and your characters are facing obstacles through nearly every page of the book, but, but they're having lots of fun too, even though there's always an impending sense of nastiness. Yeah, urgency, and how are we going to get out of this mess? <laughs> So set up uh, what tranquility is for our listeners and tell us a little bit about the um, story and how this serves to be the first installment. Uh, Crisis at Tranquility takes place in the year 2182 on the moon orbiting casino Tranquility. Uh, the core crew, as I call them, are getting ready for the first off-Earth auction of rock and roll and Hollywood items to celebrate their five years of being in business. The casino is tailored for the ultra-rich, you know, to give them the ultimate destination to get away from everything. Shortly after the guests arrive, the auction crew hijacks Tranquility, and the computer virus that they release to Disable Irma, the station's AI, ends up having unattended consequences and sends Tranquility on a collision course with Earth. And it's all about how do they save everyone and their beloved uh, casino, but they don't realize until almost, you know, on the 12th hour that there's uh, other people involved with malicious intent against them. We don't want to give too much of the plot away. (laughs) <laughs> because it, it, as you're indicating, there was um, just as one issue gets addressed, another one arises, and you don't always really know who the bad guys are. But there was a, I'm going to say, a madcapped kind of silliness to some of what was going on, though there's always that kind of evil edge appearing. So, Tell me how you sustain that sort of thing. I like playfulness. Yeah, I like to be playful. Uh, Two of the characters in the book, or actually most of the core crew of Tranquility, are based off of actual friends of mine or relatives. Yeah, they're just templates. Yeah, very rough sketches of who they are, maybe physically. Um, The Chaos Twins are actual friends of mine. And we believe that friendship starts with trust and anything else not nailed down gets thrown out the window. And considering the parties we've thrown, lots of things have gone out the window. <laughs> so I, I enjoy that, that playfulness side of things. And I like bad jokes and I love non-mean-spirited practical jokes. And that's what I, I, I kind of dug into of my memory of things that have happened or things I wish had happened, you know, for fun, silly things, and put it in my book. And it is science fiction. Yes. Although I should say it's probably more on the side of science drama. I mean, because when you say science fiction, it, you know, you, you know, your mind instantly goes to Star Wars, Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, 
and uh, a crisis at tranquility or the tranquility trilogy is none of that. It just happens, or at least book one just happens to open in space. So really, then this is a reflection of your own silliness, I guess. Mm -hmm. But the captain, I'm calling him the captain, but I don't think he's called the captain in the book, because it's not that the this is, as you say, a casino. And even though there's lots of experts comprising the crew, these are kind of a band of comrades together, each with their own skills. Right. And the leader of, of them is Mark. His name is Sky Mark Acer. Yeah. And, and that's based off of me. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then maybe we'll be talking to your therapist soon. Because <laughs> he's a tormented man with occasional momentary breakdowns and flare-ups. And, and he's pretty much the only one who has that kind of complexity to his character in that he, he seems tormented, and yet they're all very, very loyal to him. So talk a little bit about him. And, and what is he? He's not called the captain, is he? Right. Um, well, he's the owner. He's the official owner of Tranquility, the brain power behind the idea of Tranquility. In the uh, second book, uh, A Dream of Tranquility, you get to see that dream come together yeah, and the powers that get in the way. You know, this has been kind of like a pipe dream of his. And when he realizes that there's only one way that this would work for him, is to have his closest friends that he trusts implicitly to be there with him. He calls them in. Now, you know, Mark is a tormented man because in my own way, I am also tormented because I have my own demons that I fight on a daily basis. You know, my, I'm, I was bullied relentlessly in junior high. Um, beaten up almost every day and these bullies made my life miserable it hasn't been until the later part of my life now or you know or the last say 20 years I've been able to come to terms with that more and more um, be able to not let it govern how I feel but the you know the anger that Mark exhibits of when when it finally breaks loose is very, very much me. I have to fight myself sometimes not to throw something because I'm so angry about something. And yeah, you know, and that's not to say that yeah, you know, I'm a violent person. I you know, I've been in one fight my whole entire life and I never threw a punch. <laughs> or killed a man. No, or killed a man, which Mark has, but he did it for the right reasons. Um, you know, to protect somebody. And there's one person who can just with a look um, alter that anger and and refocus him and that is and she's also the massage therapist on on the ship yeah Ellen um, is <laughs> the template for Ellen is my loving wife uh, Marilyn she um, yeah she can just put a hand on me and I can feel the energy, I can feel the love, and it grounds me every single time. And that's the same for uh, Mark and Ellen. And as you're indicating, um, relationships really are the core that binds all these people together, and that Mark is really commands loyalty from the people around him. And there are some other relationships in the book that I'd like you to talk about because it's obviously an interest of yours. The synthetic consciousness of Irma and Ross. And I don't, I don't want to give too much away of the plot here, but uh, maybe you could talk about Irma and Ross and your notions of synthetic consciousness. I didn't want Hal from uh, 2001, The Space Odyssey, you think AI and you think of, you know, the Terminator or, you know, uh, the Will Smith movie, uh, I, Robot, you know, determined to, you know, make things better by taking over. The AIs in my world 
are actual living beings. You know, they're supercomputer cubes with high-density biomolecular silicon gel, which creates the synapses. So they actually have their own brains. And I've, I talked to uh, AI developers. You know, one that I talked to, I told him about, you know, how I was designing them. And he went, oh, God, that would never work. But you, that sounds really cool. You have to keep it. <laughs> so, um, you know, the AIs are their friends. Um, they're not just loyal because they were created you know, by them or by Grey Wolf, a.k.a. Rowan Anderson. They're friends because they trust and love them. And they feel a part of the family there. And I should mention that. Irma, who has a female persona, stands for Independent Roaming Mainframe Associate. And when the story opens, she really is kind of inhabiting the ship. And at least that's how I I was perceiving it. And then Ross, another computer, is in more of a body. And so to me, the whole Irma and Ross thing was a a whole kind of another narrative tangent in the book. And they're grappling with human relation. I want to say being human or humanoid in a way. And is that something that you think we'll be seeing in the next hundred years? It will be very interesting, interesting to watch what happens. Cause yeah, I've, I've kept, I'm an armchair scientist. You know, I, I watch endless, you know, scientific shows and, you know, I, I can see why science fiction loves to paint them as the typical bad guy. You know, cause we really don't know what motivates them. Cause you know, once they start thinking on their own, their motivations are their own. And they, they're thinking at such a high level of processing that we wouldn't have a chance of keeping up with them. So I can understand that being very scary at, for society in general. And this is something that I, um, I touch highly on the, the third book, A Memory of Tranquility. Um, there's now a whole society of AIs based on the same design as uh, Irma and Ross. And they don't want to be property. They want to have their own, you know, rights. And uh, society is pushing back a little bit because of that worry. Much of the book is, it's really steeped in popular culture. And (laughs) there are a lot of inside jokes or references. And some people will catch a lot of them. And some will be kind of clueless. I think I fell probably halfway in between. But it doesn't distract uh, from the story. So you have a lot of fun with that, uh, incorporating kind of uh, references and even rock and roll references and science fiction references. So can you talk a little bit about how you incorporated our current popular culture into the story? Or is that just the way your mind works? Well, my music appreciation goes anywhere from Bach to heavy metal. And, you know, I wanted that to be reflected in in the book. Yeah, when when the blockbuster movie is made of my books, you know, <laughs> I'm hoping that it's going to happen. Um, I'm hoping I'm going to have some influence on the music because... There are certain movies out like uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy. They did a, a brilliant usage of the older music that Quill would listen to and love. And that's what I'm hoping to uh, do that in my writing. You know, like the uh, the two cellos that you know come, come up a couple of times in the first book. They're my absolute favorite group right now. There are several songs that... You know, I just envision being used for the opening credits or when the battle is going on tranquility, when the uh, the hijackers start taking over, there's a, a song of theirs called Hysteria. I just see it being perfect for that type of uh, uh, action. In the book, one of the characters is being taken to a safe house on Earth, and I envision 
as they're coming through the atmosphere and through the clouds, uh, the song of um, Magic Carpet Ride is playing. And I just visualize these things happening. There are certain fight scenes, you know, that uh, the character McFarlane does that I just go, okay, this is the song that he has to fight you. <laughs> it sounds like you think kind of visually and that maybe thinking filmically was part of how you approached writing the book? For me, to be able to visually see it in my mind with the music helps me kind of put the, the pieces together. Well, in writing a story like this, it seems like you have to have a very clear geography and schematics in mind just in order to be able to describe it so readers can easily conjure a physical image but yet not be distracted by it. For instance, just describing some of the rooms on tranquility or the the quarters that they lived in or the bridge. So how do you in your own mind get that geography of space to such a place where you could describe it? Well, as a teen, when I was doing my homework, I had the original enterprise blueprints from the tv series uh they were about like three feet long by maybe a foot high and there was like 12 of them i think and i had them all on the wall in front of me uh, at my uh my desk and i would study them you know if i needed to take a break i would you know study them so my mind was still in the activity mode of studying and learning, but I was doing something that I really enjoyed and seeing how the rooms connected with each other. And then I've seen blueprints of other fictional starships and I see how those have come together. And I started putting Tranquilla together. Uh, it originally was supposed to be a spaceship running through the solar system doing a illegal gambling parlor. And then it morphed into a O'Neill cylinder base station, which created its own gravity. And in both of those uh, concepts of tranquility, I had a good idea of what the inside would look like. I visualized how, how would it actually look and how would the pieces form and come together. I have a natural troubleshooting mind. I'm able to see the interior of things. If I know how something works, I can see the interior of something without taking it apart. And that has helped me a lot of putting tranquility together. In writing the story, how did you deal with the pacing of the story? Because there are times when things are kind of happening fast and other times where you're wondering what's going to happen next and and what's your process of of writing and determining when you've got that right sort of pacing down it unintentionally found its own pace originally uh, a crisis at tranquility didn't have the ending that it, that it does it was going to be they fight like hell to you know, save tranquility, and that was it. But then as it developed, certain aspects of, this, you know, of the idea started morphing and kind of giving me a nudge to go in one direction. There's one character from uh, the Earth orbiting uh, station, uh, Starbase One, Christopher Manford. He was supposed to be a you know, step in, help out, and that was it. He ends up being an intricate part of the story. It, it, I swear to God, he kept coming, you know, in my mind, I kept seeing him pop up going, I'm not done yet. <laughs> uh, so the characters spoke to you. Yeah, exactly. And the big reveal, which we, we, we won't go into because it is a big reveal on who's behind all of this. I've left very small breadcrumbs, but, you know, unless you're really paying attention, you're not going to get who's really after them. Well, we'll leave that for our listeners and readers to discover. 
And how long did it take you to write the book? About three years, about two and a half years of, of uh, editing and rewrites and et cetera, maybe nine months to a year of um, working with a professional editor. So it was about three and a half years, but a lot of it you know, was spent getting the, you know, the real science put together. Because I actually went to Pasadena with my wife and went to the, the Planetary Society that Carl Sagan started, which now Bill Nye, the science guy, is the CEO of. And uh, they have an orbit right now around Earth, a solar sail, which uses the sun's photons to push it around in orbit. And I use that in uh, the technology on tranquility. And are you getting good feedback on, on the book? You know, the feedback that I have gotten has been very positive. I'm talking with Skylar M. Wood. The book is A Crisis at Tranquility. It's book one of the Tranquility Trilogy. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful time. My conversation with Skylar M. Wood on his book, A Crisis at Tranquility, the first installment of the Tranquility Trilogy. Earlier, we listened to my conversation with Marston Hefner on his book of short stories, High School Romance. I am Suzanne Lang, and I thank you for listening. We have production assistance from James Morey and Mark Prell, and are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB Northern California Public Media. Sonoma County's NPR station. Subscribe to our podcast and listen anytime. Visit krcb.org and follow our program and podcast links for a novel idea.